Welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Backer as always. And today we are going to be diving in a little more deeply around streaming music and how it's become definitively, we are definitively in an era where distributing music on physical formats as a primary way of selling music is gone. And yes, okay, to people who want to note that the rise in vinyl, yes, this according to sales by the RIAA in 2020, vinyl sales are over 600 million. So people are buying physical formats, but that's nothing that pales in comparison. But only losers. To streaming, which, <laughs> yeah. Which, <laughs> and he says that uh, while, as we've mentioned, like a massive like tower of records uh, sits behind him. But yeah, streaming generated 10 billion. So 10 billion to 600 million. We know what era we're in. It's not even digital formats of music anymore. Who owns a fucking MP3? They're on the decline as well. 18% from 2019 to 2020. And that's continuing an ongoing trend. The main way, and so now the main way we listen to music is, of course, streaming. Duh. No, this isn't, rev- this isn't revelatory. It should be obvious to all of us. But it does bring up some concerns and some questions around access to music and how it shapes history and culture and also like how we view and value a song or an album today. And you know, for example, like here's a question, what happens to our playlists or our favorite albums if Spotify was suddenly to like shut down or go offline? So with streaming continuing to become the dominant way in which we gauge, engage with music, listen, share, create playlists, all that, Sam and I today are thinking on this transformation and uh, what it all means. So, Sam, <laughs> to g- kick off, let's start with the question I just posed. Just real, some real basics before we really dive into it. Uh, what happens to our playlists and our favorite albums and songs and shit if, if Spotify was to, like, suddenly fold? I mean, like, they'd, well, the songs would still exist somewhere, I guess. Maybe. Uh, no, I mean, no, the songs would still exist, but yeah, the playlists that would go away, the plays would go away. I mean, there, there's a tremendous amount of, like, there's an entire infrastructure of meaning that exists solely on these platforms. And it's not even like, it's like there's a running record of it, you know? Like, I have no idea if, like, I don't know if there's a running record of, like, rap caviar. Okay. Things are pulled off playlists, things are put on playlists, but, like, it's, the you know, even the playlists themselves don't have to remain like staple i've got playlists where tracks have been pulled not not spotify playlists but like youtube playlists where like tracks disappear for different reasons different tracks are added and it's like it's kind of like link rod right yeah these like basically a good chance is that like yeah the songs are still there but like all our playlists and our favorite albums and like you know that sort of history will of our personal history i guess you could say will will disappear I'm saying something a little different, I think. I'm saying is that that history is already gone. Yeah. Right? That the, or that the way that history is functioning in a, in a zone like Spotify or a zone like YouTube is fundamentally different. That, like, the, that the relationship is, is, is it's like a constant now and some stuff gets kept in the now and some stuff leaves the now and sometimes that can get, like, accretions. So, like, comments on comments on comments and old YouTube videos. But, like, it's a very different fundamental relationship to like the records of the past yeah or like the progression of 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 time it's a much i feel like it's a much more flattened vision of it than 
used to exist, right? It's not, you didn't, you don't check out the hip hop charts on Spotify for this week. You go to the same playlist and that playlist has the same name every day and it doesn't have a different date. It's just one playlist and it changes. And so this is Rap Caviar. It's got a certain vibe. It's got a certain sound. It'll change over time. But like that already, I feel like reflects a, a, a changed relationship to this like constant, ever shifting present, right? Then the the I don't know the Billboard hip hop charts do, given how central something like this is to like listening ship and and the construction of like how we think about music. These playlists discussing what happens if Spotify folds is not like an if question. It's a when question eventually Spotify will close or get bought up by a different company. Like very, very few companies from 1950 survive to the present day in unaltered forms, right? I think it's only fair though that we note that for the majors from what I can tell right now, there's really no incentive to like put the squeeze on Spotify any more than they already have. Um, Universal, for example, is set to go public next week and its valuation is estimated to be like 60 billion. And like as the Financial Times actually wrote today, the valuation of Universal is based off the simple premise that more people stream music on apps like Spotify, that the value of music rights will grow. And Universal is the world's leader in music right ownership. And so, you know, like in 2020, recorded music sales hit like 21 billion. Streaming alone makes up 13 billion of that. So Record companies make money primarily through collecting royalties from tech companies, as we've explained on the show. And profit margins are climbing, partly because there's less overhead with less production of physical formats such as CDs and whatnot. So, like, why fuck what, with what works? So, like, it's probably not going to happen anytime soon, but, like, it could change or it can get bought out or it can transform. And the thing is that we're, I think the main point is, like, the sort of tenuousness and of the fact that, like, all the music that we listen to is basically on privately owned profit driven platforms that run off the cloud (laughs) yeah yeah so the the thing that's interesting is so this is the kind of the background of like the fact that not everything is out there and not everything is out there in terms of being able to be streamed and not everything is always going to be able to be streamed that despite the despite the fact that you know, that is sort of the premise that like you have access to anything at all times through like these apps and the internet, like it's not all out there. So, I mean, I I think what's interesting maybe is taking some time to try to figure out like, what does that mean for musical culture and like, how does things coming in and out? So, right. So, so it seems to me that we've gone from a world in which there's a fairly limited supply of available music, but there's a relative high stability of like the total supply of music recorded. That 78 in the attic is like staying there. But, but so then maybe what we're faced with, right? And to try to think through is a world in which there's a constant stream of new music. That's where a lot of the attention goes. And then that and the kind of like long tail of like big bands from the past that for kind of uh, artifacts of listening format or fandom or previous chart success remain like locked into like central positions in various musical universes. So like the Eagles, Steely Dan, the Rolling Stones, like 
I think those are going to keep having ACDC is going to keep getting new fans like in 20 years. I, I don't feel like that's like a crazy thing. I think that like cult, the cultural stability of those arts, those acts are kind of like fairly stable for, for, for the moment. So if this is like kind of like constant new stuff and kind of then big acts that are kind of like pull positions that formats and playlists are built around. The question is like, what's going to happen to the kind of the, the wash of stuff that doesn't quite stick. And it seems like maybe in the place of this, will they end up in dollar record bins, but they still kind of float around. And maybe if there's interest in them, you can like pull it together and reissue. We're going to face this world where things are going to kind of flicker in and out of existence, like in and out of the, 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 the universe of recorded music. And like maybe leave for weird reasons, maybe come back for weird reasons, maybe vanish and like into the ether. And so the question is like, what does that musical world like look like? And what does that musical world act like? And like one way to think about that is to look at some of these edge cases of stuff right now that hasn't quite made it into the world of streaming or like kind of made it in the world of streaming then left um, and try to figure out like, okay, so like what is that, music do how does that music function differently because i feel like those edge cases of the streaming universe tell us a fair bit about how like how a lot of music is gonna end up functioning in 30 years where it's like who knows like what kind of uh support like the fifth nba young boy mixtape released in 2021 like how much availability a medium to high successful rapper from 30 years ago's fifth mixtape, like how much like uh, database stability those releases are going to have. I think maybe um, for us, uh, maybe like a better case would just be kind of looking at like what's been missing currently in this like dominant age of streaming, dominant age of like using, listening to music as if it was a utility, as a merc, merc, mercuriatus of a hypnosis likes to put it, in the sense that you pay a subscription and you have access to supposedly all the music, but as we will, as we've just said, you actually don't. And one example is Aaliyah, whose last two albums just now in 2021 became available on, all, I guess, all streaming services. Yeah, so basically what happens with Aaliyah is that Aaliyah's second two albums are on a small independent label run by her uncle. And after her tragic death, he kind of removes, as far as I can tell, like removes himself from the music industry. And because he doesn't, for like family politics reasons, there's some tension with the like, um, the the Aaliyah's parents who like run her estate and like they don't want to dis dis, dis um, honor or do anything to her memory and so they just sort of like never release the music again yeah and so like this gives an example of like when we talk about what's like not on streaming services it's not just like the small and obscure and like out there it's like major culturally relevant albums and artists are sometimes going missing on and are still missing from these streaming platforms and that leads to questions around history and influence and like documenting and context and all of that and you know so you know one thing that we were kind of wondering is like now that that's all available now that her her second two albums are now available 
like will that like you know spark maybe a new interest in Aaliyah you know like where artists that are influenced by her that maybe people listen to that now they can go and actually like listen to like the sort of source material you know and and then and that you know maybe that won't happen right but even from a even from a historical sense and just trying to understand like the how the music develops to not like have access to that music really makes you wonder like what sort of effect that has like on culture and when we try to like look back and like understand you know where this music came from i think the Aaliyah thing is actually gonna be a really interesting test case um which is like so while Aaliyah's music has been absent from the dominant ways of listening to music for the past 10 15 years and like producing real demand for her albums which have been trading for like ludicrous used cds I've been trading for like ludicrous amounts of money <laughs> and like clearly groups and like artists influenced by Aaliyah have been extremely important over the previous, extremely important over the last decade. Right. Like I think Drake to my mind is like heavily Aaliyah influenced. The weekend is heavily Aaliyah influenced. And so it's going to be interesting, like for younger artists who have come up influenced by those two and with Aaliyah in the cultural memory, but maybe not the chance to, like, really easily dig in, I feel like it's easy to say, like, well, you could always find it on, like, YouTube. But, like, I think inertia is real, right? And I think that, like, closing down paths of access to music does shift attention away from an artist, especially if one of the major ways that people listen to this music is in playlists where you want to put Aaliyah next to Drake. And the fact that you can't do that means it's harder to make those connections which is how people are understanding music now. Yeah, and I mean, I think I think the proof is in the money. You know, if you look at the numbers, like the 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 amount of money that streaming music is generating, and the popularity of users on these streaming platforms is only growing, and so that becomes like the dominant way in which like people access music. And like, yeah, it's like kind of shitty to like listen to YouTube on your phone for whatever <laughs> for whatever reason, you know. And so like less people are going to be exposed to that. And I think that also to your question of like, you know, oh, well like there'd be maybe some sort of like revival of like listening to Aaliyah and maybe we'll see that come out in some way and like in the music. I think it's interesting to note that like maybe that time is maybe that time has passed. And maybe we've already maybe, and maybe that's, you know, maybe it won't happen. And that's because of the fact that like, you know, her music hasn't been on streaming platforms and as accessible or like you know very little of her music has has been there there there's the first album and like some other tracks as well which is kind of like pr also proof of what we're saying and like what we're kind of concerned about is like what happens when these like made these like major gaps in like this history that is like influencing current contemporary artists like just completely go missing and i think like another example is just the complete lack of de la soul on streaming which is something that we've talked about a lot, which if you think about like the contemporary sound- a shocking amount. I feel like we've talked about the, the lack of De La Soul in streaming, like a surprising amount. <laughs> I think, you know, and I think that's because, you know, hip hop is always, I think, you know, I used to say when I was in my early twenties, if like you wanted to know what was happening in America, just like listen to hip hop, which I think was just like me being like a, you know, edgy, like a uh, 20 something, but like- I don't have to Chuck D quote too, right? Like. Chuck D said it was the black CNN like that's not I don't think that's incorrect at all yeah yeah and I think it's interesting and also just you know and on so many different levels like you know you you described uh, and I'm not trying to like out you here but you described like Freddie Gibbs recently as like neoclassicist which I was like oh explain that to me but I thought that was really interesting and I think that what you were referencing was just the fact that he kind of had like more of a like soulful sort of like 90s 
early 2000s sort of like sound or at least like one of the sounds that was present at the time right and that's really interesting you know so we're, we're constantly talking about this stuff and we're like wow what does it do that like you know rappers coming up now producers coming up now that are like very young in their teens or early 20s have not been able to like stream de la soul and that's not saying that they haven't heard de la soul i'm sure they may have gone to the record store and gotten it or like older brother has it or maybe they actually went on youtube and listened to it like whatever you know like it's it's so referential but you know it does make you wonder like how much of their like lack of presence in the most accessible form and the most dominant form in which we listen to music like has possibly had some sort of like lack in our like current in like the current contemporary sound of like hip-hop you know when like if it was there like what would have been the influence like would have it sounded different or would it like you know or would it have been more or, like things like that no i mean it, it's also i think that there's a question that's also really interesting and this is always true right which is that the culture industries of the present and like the conditions of capitalism in the present shape our understanding of the past. Like, I don't think that there's been a time in the last like 150 years where that's not true. And so the question then is becomes like what very specific aspects of the culture industries of the present shape the past and how are they doing so? Right. And in the case of De La Soul, right, the reason that De La Soul is not on streaming is that uh, De La Soul's first two albums, but particular their kind of like debut masterpiece, Three Feet High and Rising, um, is just a wash in semi-cleared or uncleared samples. It was released at a time when it wasn't clear what exactly fair use was. It's still not clear, but by the way, what exactly fair use is, it's just like everyone's kind of lawyered up and then you pick which samples and you make sure they're cleared and then you don't have to worry about what fair use is because you've paid off who you need to pay off. But De La Soul didn't do that. This is not necessarily an album that's going to make, it's not going to go platinum on streaming now right away, right? So it's unclear if it makes sense to like pay off the right people. So because of that, it just hasn't been on streaming. And so uh, Tommy Boy, the label that it's on, so they're bought up by Reservoir, which is one of these like basically music, new music rights companies that are buying up masters and and uh, songwriting rights left and right. We've talked about them pretty extensively. Look to our um, all the episodes of David Turner of uh, Penny Fractions for, for for an extensive discussion of those issues. So now they're maybe in the process of getting cleared, but it, it just kind of that reason, right, that there are uncleared samples on these tracks kind of suggests the ways in which the issues of the present are shaping the memory of the past, right? Like, there's a lot of semi-cleared sounds. The legal issues of the present. Exactly, right? There's a lot of semi-cleared stuff in important rap songs. And if in the future anything that's semi-questionable according to like kind of evolving industry standards of use rights is kind of like it's kind of left behind you get in some ways a like a more conservative vision of the past certainly like a vision of 90s hip-hop that doesn't include de la soul which is like one of the most audaciously like goofy and positive and psychedelic albums in the rap canon which also went platinum, right? This was not like a, this is not an indie backpacker record. This is like a huge commercial success. It's a, it's in some ways a more conservative vision of what hip hop 
was and what hip-hop could be. And it's interesting to see that conservatism not necessarily like in the primary texts from the past, but being imposed by the dictates of the present as history is being constructed. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah, and I think like another another example of that, another great example of that is also like mixtape culture. Uh, so for those of you not aware, <laughs> in the early 2010s, there was, I guess, what's being turned as like the blog era. <laughs> and there used to be all these like music there used to be all these like music blogs that would just like post mixtapes, like new songs, like whatever. And probably like the most dominant one that's still around is like Dat Piff, which would like, you know, drop like ended up dropping major mixtapes for free download. You could stream them, but like for free download uh, from like the likes of like Lil Wayne and like Wiz Khalifa and really ended up like kind of like launching like a lot of careers. Like I mentioned Freddie Gibbs earlier and like, you know, currency. Yeah. And really kind of help these artists like help the careers of these artists like sort of take off. And it Dapif is still around and surprisingly you can actually still get on there and you can still download these mixtapes and, and, and stream them. But it's like an indep- independently owned site and there's a lot of like legal issues around it. And the owner of Dapif has like gone over, like has really made an effort to like maintain a relationship with these artists and also like the major labels like Universal and has somehow been able to kind of just like squeeze a sort of like middle ground where he's like not really a threat to like the rappers anymore and he's not really a threat to the major labels and but he has like a history of like being influential and helping like these artists like really take off so i read an interview recently that i think came out like 2019 uh with kp the owner of dapif and you know he said you know our archive will be here forever you know, so long as I'm handling it, will be one of the best catalogs of historic hip hop music that exists for decades to come. And I think that's great because, like, it's great that he's like that, that he makes like me so nervous. <laughs> no, 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 but no, but that no, that, and he should make you nervous, right? Because at one, I'm like, this is really great. This is an example of like kind of what we want from whatever it may be, like a streaming service, like Spotify or something. But like as we've explained, like obviously they're profit driven. They don't give a fuck about like music. They make about they give a fuck about making money. KP is like also like clearly like a music fan, like a hip hop fan, you know. And even then, like even though his heart is in the right place and that's what he wants, like it's hard to believe that it will still be there in like 15 years or 20 years. And like one can hope. Anyway, so get on there and like download like all the all the mixtapes you can from Dat Piff. No, but the point being is that like here's another example and it, I think it, you know KP says it right there like, you know, catalogs of historic hip hop music. And like the mixtape era during the like blog era of like the early t- of the mid 2000s is like a major cornerstone of like hip hop's history. And it's kind of like running the risk of like not being accessible at all pretty soon here. <laughs> yeah, man. So that makes me so nervous because I, I believe right in the good. There's like trust in God, but tire camel, man. It's like, um, <laughs> no, but you know, it's what like, a, it's like, I believe in all the good intentions of a single person. But the point is that in the long run, right? People pass away and things happen. And if it's like a, you know, a, a, a th- 30, 30 99 or twenty nine ninety nine GoDaddy subscription is like <laughs> every month is like keeping this archive going. Like you miss one month and it's gone or two months and it's gone. And like, that's, I think a major problem just generally, but, but so like, I mean, I think it's worth it to separate this. And I think this is really the crux of what we're trying to talk here today. Right. 
And I think this is a, a more useful example to talk through a lot of these issues than even than Leah or De La Soul because it's it's more recent and it's a I would say like a of more obvious influence and more broad influence on like a whole swath of modern rap music, right? Like like there's DJ drama. Yeah, it's not one artist. It's like a whole era. Yeah, and and yeah, exactly. So in understanding the, like not only hip hop but like the artists themselves, like if you really wanted to be like a nerd and like really go and understand like how like Lil Wayne's career transformed. I mean, you have to go check out like at least like what the first three or four the drought like mixtapes. Yeah, the three three droughts, the the DJ Drama Gangster Girls mixtapes. Like, there's like a like, right all that. But but so so like. I think, and it's it's useful to think about this on, on two different tracks. I mean, we can separate them these tracks out and, and think about both of them for a minute, right? The first is what is the relative lack of this pretty broad swath of really important, still pretty current music mean for like thinking about what's on streaming and how streaming is constructing music history. And the other is like thinking about like the long-term implications of this cultural moment. Because it's like, you go to Dat Piff and look up G-Unit and there's like six or seven G-Unit mixtapes. They're all great. You go on Spotify, there's there are two officially released albums which are far less good. And G, I mean like, I, I went to high school like in the Tricet area in the the 2000s, like Junit was a really big deal. And minus those mixtapes, it's less clear why. It's like much less clear why. So maybe maybe we could talk about like, I don't know, like what is it what does it mean for the music if this huge chunk of like pretty recent culture is just like totally, totally unavailable. Well, I mean, I think, I think, you know, I think the one thing that that comes that springs to mind right away is the fact that like we're basically letting these like profit-driven driven corporations like like dictate our understanding of history and music, you know, and like really kind of and also like letting them like dictate possibly how it's archived for the future. I do think though that it is a concern that is. And I don't mean it sounds shitty here, but like let's be real, like there's not a lot of people that are probably really, really care about like what we're talking about. Because, you know, things like archive and like, you know, history and stuff like that, I mean like a lot of people are just like really kind of casually listening to music. They like their songs. And also like the habits have changed, which I'll get into in a minute. 
right? But, you know, like, I think that, you know, you in your background as a historian, I think are probably like more equipped to really kind of like answer that question. It's just like sort of like why it is so important and like why maybe somebody who kind of like is listening right now or somebody who you would talk to about this would be like, yeah, you know, like whatever. Like I like, you know, I like 50 cents early stuff, but I don't really give a fuck about like listening to early G unit, you know, like, but like it is important that that stuff gets maintained and like maybe, maybe going a little bit more in depth and explaining that would be, um, would be helpful. Well, I mean, I don't even think it requires being that in in depth. I mean, like, there's the there's the broad cultural argument, right? Like, of like why this stuff is important. The shorter cultural argument, I think, is that like our historical imagination is shorter than our historical memories. Like, people are thinking about culture ten years. Like, anything that's over five or ten years old, it's like it's never coming back. And yet, we also know that pretty systematically, every twenty years, popular culture has a variety of revivals, right? Like. Right, so if you're into pop punk, you can go and make a playlist of the big or even indie like pop punk records from 2010 and put them on a playlist. And a lot of new bands in like a variety of pop punk revivals, both like above and below ground, like I guarantee are doing that. But if you wanted to like be a New York revivalist and do the exact same thing for big tracks. I think that similar numbers of people were listening to that were as big in their moment. You can't do that on Spotify. Maybe you can do it on YouTube, but it's harder to dig in deeper. And I can't believe that's not going to have, that's not going to shape how various revivals, like the reconstruction of the past that like cultural revivals necessarily are built around. Like, how they're going to imagine that. So like if you're a New York hip hop person, and you want to make New York sounding hip hop, it it's probably not great that like the cultural materials for that revival, like Dipset and G-Unit aren't on streaming. That can't make it easier for like Remy Ma. Okay. Well, like, let me ask you, let me challenge you on this because like, you know, like I think you're a little bit uh, more well-versed in this. Like what, what does that mean in regards like are, are there any kind of historical like examples in which like you can sort of point to because i mean i feel like this like you know obviously the format changing to like this sort of like cloud-based streaming subscription-based you know almost like music as a utility is like very different than anything that we've ever seen before but i'm just kind of curious like what what is like is there any kind of like historical example because i feel like the you know the loss of music and there being like gaps in history and understanding of music is like not unprecedented you know and i guess like you know kind of one thing we're thinking about is like who's the like i guess you know alan lomax of like the like 2000 streaming blog mp3 era right and it's so like but like and there's always stuff that goes missing you know right so it's like like how like this this is this is this isn't like completely unprecedented or is it i think like i feel like the the, the better historical analogy might be like harry smith right so Harry Smith puts together the anthology of American folk music. And he's basically this like a true genuine weirdo. He makes these amazing animated films with like crazy little creatures moving around through like bizarre stop motion animation. He has an entire book about like not not culture. Like I don't mean like not like anti-culture. I mean like the culture of knots like as hist- American folklore. <laughs> he's very into like not like K-N-O-T-S art. Like, not art. Um, and it's a total weirdo. Also, 
kind of in this very like postmodern way like goes all around the country has this amazing collection of 78s of like this earlier era so not to get too far into the weeds in like 1920 company record companies realized that they could send out people record local artists without paying them basically anything go back to their maiden pressing plants press up copies of those records and then sell a bunch of them to local eras it made them pretty good money until like 1928 1929 when the bottom i mean the bottom falls out of the market really in 1929 but there's a slowdown before that probably so you get like seven years of this and then you know a couple things happen the great depression world war ii the introduction of radio like (laughs) color like by the time anyone thinks about this music again basically it's the 50s and no one's like a lot of it got like during the world war ii people were collecting vinyl to be smushed in like melted down and turned into things for like for the war effort a lot of times people would buy a vinyl to like repress new records onto it so basically no one's thought about this stuff and it's in people's attics if it survives at all and I mean, people are listening to it, like the people who own it, but it's not in anything resembling print. And Harry Smith has this big collection of these local folk songs and makes a compilation of it. That's kind of the, one of the foundational texts of like the folk revival that gives us Dylan and New York 60s. And if someone didn't do that, the question is like, would the folk revival have looked different? And the answer is like, probably yes and would there have ever been any folk revival and like maybe our understanding of that time and like the communities that this music was coming out of maybe our understanding would be like like lacking so i mean going back to the myspace thing i mean it's easy to say like it was a million bad emo bands but like there's a pretty serious fifth wave emo revival i think we're on fifth wave emo revival bubbling around now i missed the fourth wave apparently it happened um but like I'm sure that there are people who are influential now who had stuff that was lost in the in the great like MySpace memory crash. And I bet that like everyone loves like, you know, the first, you know, the, the minor threat of whatever emo band, right? Like the first, the band that was like, you know, was around before the other bands because then they're all in high school and people listen to that stuff and it's important to people. And like, no one can go back and do that digging now. It's not there. It's gone. And yeah, I mean, you know, unless somebody has like archived it and like that's a question right now. Who knows? And I think the other thing is that there was an assumption, some of the stuff, like there was an assumption that it was there. It wasn't like in a dusty attic that you didn't think about. Like I had gone back and listened to my high school band's tracks a couple times. I had done it probably most recently three and a half years ago. It wasn't clear because I sure do not have the login information to that account anymore. Like, how I could have downloaded it, and I didn't think I had to, right? Because it was there. Well, I, th- I think we, I, I think what you're saying is that there, you know, at the time, I think there was an assumption that if you're using this service and this platform, then there's like some unwritten obligation by the platform itself to archive this stuff, and like, you know, if they were gonna fold, let you know, or like make it easily like accessible and downloadable and archive it and everything. And what we're kind of realizing now well into like web 2.0 and 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 seeing like the uh you know all these like companies kind of rear their ugly head is like they don't give a fuck and like if you want to archive it you kind of have to take it upon yourself now so yeah i mean i totally i totally agree with that so 
the one thing though I'm thinking about a little bit also with all of this to take it like one step one step beyond <laughs> uh, is like thinking about this less like a bug and more like a feature right that I think it's very easy to say oh these companies this internet culture is like failing us by by allowing important things to just kind of vanish off the face of the earth and clearly I think I think I not quite thought about it that way, but it does feel like a betrayal. Like there was an assumption as if it was like baked into like the terms of use, which it clearly wasn't that they were, you were going to upload this stuff and give them your ad revenue dollars. And they were going to not just delete it all (laughs) without telling you. Yeah. It was the early, early naive years of like, of, of the internet and like social media. And I think we were all kind of just like, this is cool. (laughs) Like, Oh, right. They're here to make money. But, well, yeah, but like at, at the very minimum, like no, I think that the, I knew that they were the here to make money and gather the information. I thought somehow like there was some standard of care, but obviously, I mean, I shouldn't have, but there is that naive assumption. I think you're right, but yeah. So in addition to like that lived reality, there's also a question of like, is there a different kind of, I guess like memory that's being created? on the internet in this in through through streaming right that like if we take seriously like i don't know like the playlistification of all things the lack of context all these things that we've talked about before and one way to look at that look at all that is from as a kind of a negative stance right from the perspective of like a scholar of 20th century music discographies that wants it the way that music functioned in the 20th century and another way to think about it is like look at it at its on its own terms a little bit and like try to figure out like what is this new world of music and musical stability and musical commodities that is being created by this system yeah i got a lot of thoughts on this i'm really happy you kind of turned to the uh, the topic of, of of like sort of memory and in relation to music and i think also the sort of elephant in the room is like how it's affecting our changing habits of listening and how maybe like there's a sort of relationship going on where like, you know, we have access to all this music and it's also the internet and the speed of like information. And it's also like, then like our own listening habits. And there's kind of this like cyclical thing going on, but yeah, you know, the topic of, you know, this topic actually did get me thinking a lot about memory and also kind of our sense of time and place and the sort of rapid acceleration of of information. And like when I say information, I'm thinking like all the ways we engage with social media and the internet and how like just the speed and amount of info we are like taking in and how that's like reconfiguring our memories in a way that's like not too dissimilar to like the way that, uh, you know, we take in inf- this information. So like, you know, we're processing more with like smartphones, TV, internet, whatever. And like, it's so interesting because earlier in the show, you said like, like sticks, like that verb, like what sticks. And I think with so much information like coming at us i feel like i i wonder if like there's like like less there's there's like less stickiness like less sticks right like quote unquote like because think about this as as soon as we see or hear something particularly through like a screen we're immediately moving on to something else or even if we experience something like in person we immediately turn to our phones right just like by habit you know so i guess it's you know i'm kind of like i'm kind of like talking about this sort of distracted argument, which, you know, of course, has also been a mitig- mitigated and capitalized by, like, corporate creative platforms and companies in, like, you know, making content shorter, right? Or, like, clip-heavy. But then, of course, like, if you make something shorter, 
can it be argued that it's also probably most likely like less memorable you know and i you know i have so I, I haven't like really looked into like any scientific studies out there i'm sure i'm sure they're out there you know but you know and i'm and i'm and i'm kind of like really like this all comes from like a book i recently read called the information bomb by paul verlo who was like really kind of foreshadowing back in the late 90s like our kind of current like information age right but regardless of even the attention argument like more simply put we just have more access thus right as we've been saying to music and thus consume more music and that means we are like likely largely spending less time with albums and singles just because there are so there's so much like will i be playing my favorite song from the past month as much as i do next month and so on like i just think that we probably spent more time with with certain albums and songs because there was less right like if you think about early days of mtv and things like that so like just to finish my point like so much of the music that just has like a shorter listening lifespan i guess is what i'm saying if that makes sense and so that led me to the question, if we spend less time with albums and even less time with singles in addition to like, you know, we are playing a greater variety of music, does that not mean that the value of music as a commodity that we consume has also lessened? And it seems like the answer is yes, but of course it's been like, also like that way in which we listen to music has been completely transformed by these corporate platforms, you know, and also like does it cheapen it because if we think about it like the monetary value of music has also increased you know at least for major publishers like universal is going to go public and they're going to be like worth like 60 billion right so it's like it's where we spend less time with music we engage with more like specific songs and albums but we, we actually listen to like more random music right so like less sticks because like is it because it's not a physical commodity is it because of the changing listening habits and like it, wouldn't it make sense to me that it would be like less valuable but and yet, like, the value is still, like, it's, it's, like, greater than it's been since, like, you know, the late 90s. So, I mean, I think one of the things, one of the things that it's clear in that, that it's both re- responded to and in some ways accelerated by, in particular, Spotify, right? And the way that they've made playlists central to their, their kind of overall, like, structure of listening that they're establishing on, on, on their, uh, through their apps and on, on their website is that, like, what seems to be the commodity, I mean, in a very basic internet-y way, is attention, right? It's listening hours is, and not music, is the thing that makes stuff, is the valuable commodity, right? And it's very much built around that. So it's one playlist and what you listen to on that playlist, and things can come in and out of that. And I think playlists are interesting because it's a way to, like, organize that listening so it'd be interesting like take a really big playlist like rap caviar which is always like my go-to example it's also the one i listen to probably the most um which is that like people spend a lot of time listening to rap caviar as a listening item as a new kind of listening item that's not an album that's not a single right yeah yeah and i i wouldn't be surprised if like the amount of time people spend engaged with rap caviar or similar types of playlists are equal like or, or, or comparable to like what people used to listen to on specific albums it's just the music yeah like listen to like a bruce springsteen album in, like late 80s like on vinyl you know it's like the comparable amount of time to like how people but now like instead of engaging with a specific album you're engaging with a like algorithmically like corporatized like payola playlist called rap caviar and it doesn't have to be rap caviar. It could be like your own playlist, like, you know, summer 2021 hits or, at the or, beach, or it could be, <laughs> Or it could be like Pitchfork's best new music. Right, right. Right? This this operates on a bunch of different levels. And then that it's kind of like, becomes the commodity or like a, an aspect of the commodity because it's like, 
now it's like we're paying for a subscription to access that commodity as i do scare quotes <laughs> it's a weird like inter intermediary intermediated commodity it's not it's not yeah it's, it's yeah. it kind of exists through its ability to put other commodities in relationship and gains value through that it's almost like vampiric right like it's sucking the value out of those other commodities by shifting the attention yeah. and the power to it it's totally from the Spotify is a valuable company argument, it's like what allows it to say that it's creating real value. Right, right. And that brings up so many other questions like in regards to, you know, things like format, like the, like how maybe the, you know, as we talked about in the past, like the importance of the album, but also like artistic, artistic expression and, you know, how like artists want to present their work. And then it also just brings up in like fundamentally like rethinking in a sort of post-industrialist society, like what the fuck a commodity is <laughs> as well. It just, it just opens up this entire door and like, we're kind of just sitting here in the middle of it, watching it transform, trying to figure it out. No, totally, totally. it's very weird. And I mean, yeah, there's a lot about it. Part of it is funny to see things like, one of the things that's really interesting is to see things move in and out of that commodity status, right? Which to me feels very intentional and like a way to create artificial scarcity. So like Nicki Minaj recently re-released her third mixtape, Be Me Up Scotty, which had not been available on streaming. And so all those tracks became briefly streaming hits again because Minaj has a huge number of fans. It's music Mm -hmm. that's already been paid for. Um, they probably had to do some extra clearances to to get it on streaming. But it's interesting to see, like, and maybe that's an example they just hadn't gotten around to it. But I could see the in a similar way to like like um by by moving things back and forth across the line of commoditization. It's the way that like in Netflix, things are leaving Netflix and so they become more valuable briefly. And then things come back on Netflix and then they get valuable again because they're moving because people want to like engage with it. Yeah, because they're moving in and out right. of the accessibility, in and out of the, that bright light of attention. And because there is a barrier, things within it actually become more valuable. And so it's useful to have stuff that's on the outskirts of it or even the threat of things off streaming almost to make some of these streaming things more valuable it's the disney model that they put a film in the vault and then they bring it back in 20 years or 10 years totally but i also wonder if it's like it's possible to do it with bringing things in and out of like the 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 the, the attention bubble right like the vault of attention like i'm thinking about like um if novelty is an important part of a commodity and like scarcity and newness is an important part of a musical commodity. And now at some level, because of the shift from a musical commodity existing as va- the value of a musical commodity existing because of its scarcity to now the value of, val- the value of a musical commodity existing at some level because of its relationship to attention, right? This like, whether it's playlist attention, whether that's like, pitchfork review attention whatever like i almost wonder if there's like a way that these sites are creating value by moving things in and out of those bubbles like like the way that that like, like uh, maybe like maybe if you like win the de la soul just an example if i to make sure i understand you correctly like maybe and i know this wasn't intentional but like maybe like bringing all of like de la soul's albums back onto streaming which is like they say they're going to but i think it's still up in the air will actually like bring more attention to De La Soul 
and give it give them like maybe more closely to the attention that they deserve and the respect that they deserve than if it had just like all been on there like in 2011 because of all these other elements that are going to have it's going to get on playlists there's going to be news items about it pitchfork's going to do a review of their entire also, catalog I think, like another example so is like on. yeah no totally and also like the, the weird thing that pitchfork does where it's like reviewing an album we haven't previously reviewed before yeah it's the sunday reviews yeah where the sunday reviews where by bringing something if they had reviewed that album when it came out that review would have no value now. Right. But it's like, because you're bringing this old commodity into this bubble of attention, it can get a new kind of value, even though nothing has changed about that commodity, except its relationship to these new intermediary, I mean, like attention brokers, basically. It's Yeah, attention brokers. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. It still makes me uneasy though, right? Because of the fact that like, you know, it gets into it gets into the question of like how much like artists have control over this and like how much this is being dictated uh, you know, just by corporate systems and people that are going to just try to capitalize on it on it even more. Because I could also see a situation just like putting my CEO cap on that like, oh, you want to get early access to hearing three feet and rising, like you know pay like this amount and like it and it just you know you can listen to it first or whatever you know i don't know it just i guess that's capitalism right <laughs> yeah no no it, but yeah absolutely it's just it's weird because it's like it's meta it's like the meta music industry yeah because it's not even necessarily things that are being released i mean it is things that are being released but it's also just like the weird constant cultivation and recultivation of this vast library of yeah, and music. so like I get, and it's also interesting too because I think that I think that like you know I mentioned the vinyl uh, sales up at the top of the show, you know, and they obviously pale in comparison to the amount of revenue that's generated by streaming. But there does seem to me, and I think this indicates that yeah, it's a little bit of a nostalgia. It's a little bit of like expression of of one's identity uh, by like you know collecting vinyl or whatever, and it you know places you like in a certain sort of category of people in society. But I think that probably some of that is actually like still a desire to have some sort of like physical actual material commodity but then that brings up the question of something else which is like the mp3s and it's like what will happen with mp3s and with transforming technologies and you know like one thing i had i was like you know we think about this whole nft thing that we did an episode about like you know a couple months ago and i'm like man what if MP- mp3s become the new collectible <laughs> you know it just it just rearranges like the whole i guess market like, you know, commodity market, commodity, the idea of a commodity, you know, and and we're just kind of existing in this space trying to sort of sort it all out. But, you know, I and like, you know, I like I like your idea, but I'm also wondering, is there a more equitable way of, I guess, like brokering that attention that isn't just like a sort of manipulation to transform my like listening habits and get me to touch my phone more? <laughs> yeah, and, and to actually pay out the artists because I mean all of this is artists, predicated yeah. predicated on like devaluing musical commodities and valuing these new like kind of intermediary attention economies which don't do much. I mean, I guess if you get caught in like the the the, the center of you know really good uh, playlist uh, placement is obviously like the way to get some money out of Spotify and people do get some money out of streaming, but as a whole it seems like the 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 the, you know we've said this many times in many different ways the lack of power and the lack of context does do in many ways a disservice to artists and certainly the idea that that 
you can just constantly be having a stream of things in and out of this like the new attention commodities is not good for artists because it gives them no it reduces their labor power yeah and i I think i think that's exactly what i was trying to say like a little bit earlier about like the sort of uh amount of information that we're being like you know and the amount of time we're being you know the amount of time spent with like an album or like a single in the sense that you know you are like you said it's like you're almost like devaluing the commodity so that you can go ahead and like take it and use it for something else to create more profit for yourself in like a different form which is like the sort of ethereal transforming playlist which is like an inter- intermediated part of the commodity yeah breather Just to, 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 to kind of wrap things up by making them even more vague. Um, I mean, the one thing is, so, so I feel like the very, a very natural response to, to trying to figure out this, like, thinking through the kind of, you know, we've talked, to, we've talked at a bunch of different levels, right, about the loss of stuff in the streaming ecosystem. We've talked about absences, like Aaliyah and De La Soul. We've talked about missing moments and historical eras, like G-Unit and Dipset and Lil Wayne. We've talked about, in some ways, almost about, like, um, ghost music in the, the, the devaluation of things that are outside of, like, the memory-creating spaces of these new meta commodities of like playlists or critical attention that um function in the kind of attention commodity attention um attention coin of the internet realm but so like i feel like a very natural response to all of this is to be like well i want it to be like the way it was but i i feel like the thing is that a as we always say like the way it was wasn't that great but also i don't think that like any amount of wishing is going to bring back the way it was so i wanted to end like maybe by thinking a little bit about like is there anything positive about a new relationship to historical memory that this kind of these various kinds of digital losses like create right there is something liberatory a little bit about saying i'm not going to buy a bunch of musical as a listener and in some ways as a music fan right that there's a real 
valuation of these like specific objects and like a building of, of a cultural identity and an aesthetic profile through the consumption of listening things. And there is something a little bit liberatory about being like, it's just going to be a wash of stuff that I'm going to listen to. I'm going to try to seek out stuff I like. I'm going to try to support people at shows, but that the, the like the idea that like the way to build an identity is this like the, the purchase of commodities that build an identity is there's something there's something I think freeing about moving away from that in a really interesting idea that there's like a pushback against like the logic of like more stuff that's at the center of of so much of like American society i don't know if you if i don't know if that makes any sense or if you think that's crazy but yeah no completely i mean it's like it's it's like no it's the classic to be honest with you like i I, like it's it's i don't even think it's that complex i think it's the classic sort of like you know as a subject moving around in like a capitalist society like i define myself through my consumerism and it's like kind of nice to be like i we all pay our 10.99 for whatever streaming service we have now and so like we're kind of on a more equitable plane now and like I can go ahead and like create like scenes and elitism and cultural, you know, and ideas around taste, which like, you know, is problematic and like has its own roots in class as well. <laughs> like, but but like you know, I, I can just go ahead and kind of like everybody's always listening to music and everybody's kind of always paying into it, and so it's kind of like breaking down that sort of like that. It's kind of like it's kind of in a weird way, like both like working within and also challenging the idea of like being a subject, just like defining my identity through like my consumer habits, which I think is like really interesting. And like I don't I think it's like probably reductive to try to say like whether or not it's like positive or negative. It's just like something different. And I, and I, I think that like you really keyed in on something that's like really liberatory. And I think that like in there are ways in which I think that it can present itself in like interesting formats or forms and i'm going to give a shout out to fortet here who kirian hebden with his real name uh fortet uh seemed like he had like a real acute understanding with a very perceptive eye on spotify's place amongst you know almost like in the greater sort of historical context of popular music format changes and like what it means like when a commodity sort of like lacks like loses its like physical form so what i'm talking about is that if you go to his spotify user page he has one playlist that's currently running over 136 hours and he basically just every song that he likes he puts on a single playlist and it's like just this massive messy trove and from a and i've been listening to it quite a lot recently and i think that like uh, another feature of, of spotify that like you know maybe i kind of like or whatever is that you can just like now like easily press a button to like make it go random of a playlist and like i just put on a random and it's like sometimes i'm getting like you know vocal classical vocal music and sometimes i'm getting like a hard-hitting like house track and sometimes i'm getting <laughs> like like indie rock and it's just like this is this wild and weird and strange, and I like I kind of love it. Yeah, I mean the thing, yeah, I, t- I that a I'm gonna check that out. B, <laughs> I think maybe what we're 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 dancing around here, right, is the need to separate two things. One is that this system and the way it's constructed is really bad for artists, and we've talked about that, or many artists, or many kinds of artists, and we've talked about that that at length. Um, 
referred to it in this episode and definitely talked about it in, in previous episodes, so go check out those. The earlier systems, maybe, where you bought an album from an artist made some artists a good living. And that's good, because I believe that artists deserve to, like, have a living. However, there was always something uneasy about the marriage between, like, music and a physical commodity. It was a specific time in history when that was true. And, like, not to be all, like, music deserves to be free, but, like, there's something uneasy about buying a song then you have like you have it like there's something acquisitive and there's something uh, something a little bit bit like ugly and exclusionary about that 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 basic relationship that the way that we previously experienced music kind of forced people into there's something elitist about it there's there's a, there's a lot to be said that's negative classes about, about it. yeah i mean like if you think about it i mean think about how much money i spent on like buying like fucking cds just because like i wanted to hear like a record and like how like that probably like kept me poor for the first like four years i lived on my own you know <laughs> like that that but then again it's like so you know because i was always put in that quandary we're like well i want to support the artist but i don't really have the money to support the artist because i'm fucking poor too so do i get to listen to their music so then do like the people that only the people that like have like expendable income get to listen to their music it was a complicated place it's a complicated thing you know and then like how much of my money is going to like that artist if i'm buy- buying it at like fucking you know whatever warehouse music or fucking best buy so so there's that right and so there is something i feel like that's different about this relationship to music there's something that's a little bit easier about this relationship to recorded music i mean a little bit it's it's a little bit more like in a, in a weird way this kind of gets into like gutenberg height uh gutenberg parentheses territory right which is that like there was no writing and there's a specific period of time where people had control they were they were writing technologies but not enough so that you could have kind of top down control of them and now we're back out the other side where everyone can publish writing so it's kind of back into something like a modified like oral culture like <laughs> version and and like and whether or not that's true it's like an interesting idea but there is something about like the idea that like music kind of comes in, you listen to it for a while, and then it leaves. There's something kind of natural about it, and my understanding is like that's a little bit like how music used to be, right? You didn't pre-recordings, you couldn't hold on to a piece of music forever. It happened sometimes, and it was awesome when it happened, and then a lot of times it didn't happen. And in a weird way, this kind of flow of music yeah. th- into the bright light of attention and then out the other side <laughs> into the vast darkness of forgetting is a little bit more like that. And there's something, yeah, yeah. I mean, what, what, you know, maybe we don't need to, is it good that we keep all the culture? I don't know. Yeah. And I think there's also something to be said about like, can we really like lay the transforming listening habits of music all on these new technologies and just say like, no, they just completely like, you know, or is there like a little bit of a willingness on our end that like, you know, they tapped into something that was like, maybe, you know, they tapped into something that would like, you know, something on a deeper level with like how we want to interact with music or how we want to interact with this kind of information as humans. And that there's something, you know, culturally contingent, right? Like listening habits function differently in different places because different cultures and i think you're totally right like you want to avoid a technologically determinist vision of how all this stuff happens because it that's inaccurate it's not technologies don't 
technologies don't do things people do things with technology <laughs> yeah there's plenty of examples of like technologies that have they've continually like try to push upon us that like are are failing like left and right uh like the lack of like success with like vr goggles is, is one example or like augmented glasses or like whatever you know <laughs> like just because they want to shove it down our throat doesn't mean it's going to work so the final the final thing i think that then in this like potential positive sea of music vision right if if it's positive or just not like i don't even want to say positive i just want to say not all like like technologically determinist like nostalgia based like you know just it's interesting and there's like and, and it, sometimes it manifests in ways in which are like yeah fine good or interesting or fascinating or like fruitful or artistic or creative or whatever but i think the one thing that i think worries me i mean there's many things that worry me many like the demise it all worries me but oh, yeah it all i think one me. thing that i think to, to maybe <laughs> pull our attention to is also just like if some of these mixtapes are not on streaming services probably because it's hard to clear these samples in a weird way and because they're not on streaming services they're less influential than they would have been maybe even much less influential than they would have been what's weird is now we're getting like a industry mediated like memory erasure of things that are resistant to commodification. Yeah, and that becomes problematic, especially in the context of the fact that if we're talking about Dapif and we're talking about mixtapes, we're also talking about the erasure of a black history. And unfortunately, maybe not for reasons that are directly just like purely like racist, because I think that it, like a lot of these mixtapes would have financial value to these like exploitative corporations if they were to finally release them especially now having been off these streaming services for so long but it is problematic in the sense that like you know on this greater cultural historical thing that hey guess what once again we're like erasing black history and that's a fucking problem and unfortunately a lot of it is might that's not on these streaming services sorry that's the point i was gonna make a lot of the stuff that's not on the streaming services is hip-hop black music things like that and i think that the reason right it's resistant to commodification is like the processes of production for this music right like these mixtapes were gray economy products operating along an entirely different distribution system than the major label system that was what made them effective that was what made them money makers that was what made them culturally important but also that's what makes them resistant like their setting as a commodity makes them resistant to these other forms of commoditization because like they didn't have to follow the rules of like clearing samples because that was it didn't matter and like i think that like i think that the shitty irony of it is that like the those sort of alternative systems in which the these like legal gray areas in which these that music came out was like a byproduct of these artists trying to like find a way to like find success and gain exposure in a system that was systematically racist and like classist and like oppressed like oppressed to like the communities that they came out of and in a double level of irony i feel like in doing that they invent internet culture right like they invent yeah right they invent fucking they internet in culture i know and now they're getting fucked and yeah they it. invent yeah. internet Ugh. culture and so bizarrely like the early versions of internet culture are absent <laughs> from internet culture myspace is gone <laughs> right like who knows that like that piff still exists but like who knows how how much longer like yeah and like it, it's so it's weird it's it's weird and, and i think that it connects i think to like this broader 
the strangeness of how history and memory work in internet culture, right? That they're increasingly things are only remembered when they're when they're valuable, maybe. I mean, maybe that's always true, but it's got a different a different spin and a different flavor in this in this setting. And who's deciding like whether or not it's valuable is like you know some suit most of the time, and like maybe they don't really fucking know exactly what is valuable, and are not putting their priorities um, in order. Like getting like the second two Aaliyah albums on, which they are now, which you should go listen to. Uh, we're gonna tie a bow on this episode because we hope you gave you a lot to think about. One thing I can definitively say is that. While I would love to have a streaming service in uh, some futuristic, utopian, luxury, communist uh, state, I still do want Spotify. I just want that surplus value to finally go back to the fucking artist. So Spotify, Universal, give some of that money back to the fucking artist, for God's sake. Not that they are listening, but that's what I want. That's essentially what we want. We want to have the ease of streaming and the weird things that come out of it, but we also want the artist paid. All we are saying is give peace a chance. <laughs> and on that note, Music by Bird Language, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening. So long. Mm-hmm.